Section 6 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vina library of the world's best literature ancient and modern volume eleven section six dante twelve sixty five through thirteen twenty one by charles eliot norton dante part three no poet has recorded his own inner life more fully or with greater sincerity than dante all his more important writings have essentially the character of a spiritual autobiography extending from his boyhood to his latest years their quality and worth as works of literature are largely dependent upon their quality and interest as revelations of the nature of their writer their main significance lies in this double character the earliest of them is the vita nuova or new life it is the narrative in prose and verse of the beginning and course of the love which made life new for him in his youth and which became the permanent inspiration of his later years, and a bond of union for him between earth and heaven, between the actual and the ideal, between the human and the divine. The little book begins with an account of the boy's first meeting, when he was nine years old, with a little maiden about a year younger, who so touched his heart that from that time forward love lorded it over his soul she was called beatrice but whether this was her true name or whether because of its significance of blessing it was assigned to her as appropriate to her nature is left in doubt who her parents were and what were the events of her life are also uncertain though Boccaccio, who some thirty years after dante's death wrote a biography of the poet in which fact and fancy are inextricably intermingled reports that he had it upon good authority that she was the daughter of folco portinari and became the wife of simone de bardi so far as dante's relation to her is concerned these matters are of no concern just nine years after their first meeting years during which dante says he had often seen her and her image had stayed constantly with him the lady of his love saluted him with such virtue that he seemed to see all the bounds of bliss and having already recognized in himself the art of discoursing in rhyme he made a sonnet 
in which he set forth a vision which had come to him after receiving his lady's salute. This sonnet has a twofold interest, as being the earliest of Dante's poetic composition preserved to us, and as describing a vision which connects it in motive with the vision of the Divine Comedy. It is the poem of a prentice hand, not yet master of its craft, and neither in manner nor in conception has it any marked distinction from the work of his predecessors and contemporaries. The narrative of the first incidents of his love forms the subject of the first part of the little book, consisting of ten poems, and the prose comment upon them. Then the poet takes up a new theme, and devotes ten poems to the praise of his lady. The last of them is interrupted by her death, which took place on the ninth of June, 1290, when Dante was twenty-five years old. Then he takes up another new theme, and the next ten poems are devoted to his grief, to an episode of temporary unfaithfulness to the memory of Beatrice, and to the revival of fidelity of love for her. One poem, the last, remains, in which he tells how a sigh, issuing from his heart, and guided by love, beholds his lady in glory in the Empyrean. The book closes with these words. Quote, After this sonnet, a wonderful vision appeared to me, in which I saw things, which made me resolve to speak no more of this blessed one, until I could more worthily treat of her, and to attain to this, I study to the utmost of my power, as she truly knows, so that, if it shall please him through whom all things live, that my life be prolonged for some years, I hope to say of her what was never said of any woman, and then may it please him who is the Lord of grace, that my soul may go to behold the glory of its lady, namely of that blessed Beatrice, who in glory looks upon the face of him, qui est per omnia saecula benedictus, who is blessed for ever. There is nothing in the new life which indicates whether or not Beatrice was married, or which implies that the devotion of Dante to her was recognized by any special expression of regard on her part. No interviews between them are recorded. No tokens of love were exchanged. The reserve, the simple and unconscious dignity of Beatrice, distinguish her no less than her beauty, her grace, and her ineffable courtesy. The story, based upon actual experience, is ordered not in literal conformity with fact, but according to the ideal of the imagination, 
and its reality does not consist in the exactness of its record of events, but in the truth of its poetic conception. Under the narrative lies an allegory of the power of love to transfigure earthly things into the likeness of heavenly, and to lift the soul from things material and transitory to things spiritual and eternal. While the little book exhibits many features of a literature in an early stage of development, and many of the characteristics of a youthful production, it is yet the first book of modern times which has such quality as to possess perpetual contemporaneousness. It has become in part archaic, but it does not become antiquated. It is the first book in a modern tongue in which prose begins to have freedom of structure and ease of control over the resources of the language. It shows a steady progress in Dante's mastery of literary art. The stiffness and lack of rhythmical charm of the poems with which it begins disappeared in the later sonnets and canzoni and before its close it exhibits the full development of the sweet new style begun by dante's predecessor guido guinicelli and of which the secret lay in obedience to the dictates of nature within the heart the date of its compilation cannot be fixed with precision but was probably not far from twelve ninety five and the words with which it closes seem to indicate that the design of the divine comedy had already taken a more or less definite shape in dante's mind the deepest interest of the new life is the evidence which it affords in regard to dante's character the tenderness sensitiveness and delicacy of feeling the depth of passion, the purity of soul, which are manifest in it, leave no question as to the controlling qualities of his disposition. These qualities rest upon a foundation of manliness and are buttressed by strong moral principles. At the very beginning of the book is a sentence which shows that he had already gained that self-control which is the prime condition of strength and worth of character in speaking of the power which his imagination gave to love to rule over him a power that had its source in the image of his lady he adds quote, yet was that image of such noble virtue that it never suffered love to rule me without the faithful counsel of the reason in those matters in which to listen to its counsel was useful. His faculties were already disciplined by study, and his gifts enriched with learning. He was scholar hardly less than poet. The range of his acquisitions was already wide and it is plain 
that he had had the best instruction which florence could provide and nowhere else could better have been found the death of beatrice was the beginning of a new period of dante's self-development so long as she lived she had led him along toward the right way for a time during the first ecstasy of grief at her loss she still sustained him after a while he tells us his mind which was endeavouring to heal itself sought for comfort in the mode which other comfortless ones had accepted for their consolation he read boethius on the consolations of philosophy and the words of comfort in cicero's treatise on friendship by these he was led to further studies of philosophy and giving himself with ardor to its pursuit he devoted himself to the acquisition of the wisdom of this earth to the neglect for a time of the teachings of divine revelation he entered upon paths of study which did not lead to the higher truth and at the same time he began to take active part himself in the affairs of the world he was attracted by the allurements of life he married he took office he shared in the pleasures of the day he no longer listened to the voice of the spirit nor was faithful to the image of beatrice in following on earth the way which should lead him to her in heaven but meanwhile he wrote verses which under the form of poems of love were celebrations of the beauty of philosophy and he was accomplishing himself in learning till he became master of all the erudition of his time he was meditating deeply on politics he was studying life even more than books he was becoming one of the deepest of thinkers and one of the most accomplished of literary artists but his life was of the world worldly and it did not satisfy him at last a change came he suddenly awoke to consciousness of how far he had strayed from that good of which beatrice was the type how basely he had deserted the true ideals of his youth how perilous was the life of the world how near he was to the loss of hope of salvation we know not fully how this change was wrought all we know concerning it is to be gathered from passages in his later works in which as in the convito he explains the allegorical significance of some of his poems or as in the divine comedy he gives poetic form to his experience as it had shaped itself in his imagination there are often difficulties in the interpretation of his words nor are all his statements reconcilable with each other in detail but i believe that in what i have set forth as the course of his life between the death of beatrice and his exile i have stated nothing 
which may not be confirmed by Dante's own testimony. It is possible that during the latter part of this period, Dante wrote the treatise on monarchy, in which he set forth his views as to the government of mankind. To ascertain the date of its composition is both less easy and less important than in the case of his other long works, because it contains few personal references, and no indications of the immediate conditions under which it was written. But it is of importance not only as an exposition of Dante's political theories and the broad principles upon which those theories rested, but still more as exhibiting his high ideals in regard to the order of society and the government of mankind. Its main doctrine might be called that of ideal Gibeyinism, and though its arguments are often unsound and based upon fanciful propositions and incorrect analogies, though it exhibits the defects frequent in the reasoning of the time, a lack of discrimination in regard to the value of authorities, and no sense of the true nature of evidence, yet the spirit with which it is animated is so generous, and its object of such importance, that it possesses interest alike as an illustration of Dante's character, and as a monument in the history of political speculation. Its purpose was, first, to establish the proposition that the empire, or supreme universal temporal monarchy, was necessary for the good order of the world. Secondly, that the Roman people had rightfully attained the dignity of this empire. And thirdly, that the authority thus obtained was derived immediately from God, and was not dependent on any earthly agent or vicar of God. The discussion of the first proposition is the most interesting part of the treatise, for it involves the statement of Dante's general conception of the end of government and of the true political order. His argument begins with the striking assertion that the proper work of the human race, taken as a whole, is to bring into activity all the possibilities of the intelligence, first to the end of speculation, and secondly in the application of speculation to action. He goes on to declare that this can be achieved only in a state of peace, that peace is only to be secured under the rule of one supreme monarch, that thus the government of the earth is brought into correspondence with the divine government of the universe, and that only under a universal supreme monarchy can justice be fully established and complete liberty enjoyed. The arguments to maintain these theses are ingenious, 
and in some instances forcible, but are too abstract and too disregardful of the actual conditions of society. Dante's loftiness of view, his fine ideal of the possibilities of human life, and his ardent desire to improve its actual conditions, are manifest throughout, and give value to the little book as a treatise of morals beyond that which it possesses as a manual of practical politics. There is little in the Demonarchia which reflects the heat of the great secular debate between Guelph and Ghibellin, but something of the passion engendered by it finds expression in the opening of the third book, where Dante, after citing the words of the prophet Daniel, quote, He hath shut the lions' mouths, and they have not hurt me, for as much as before him justice was found in me, goes on in substance as follows. The truth concerning the matter which remains to be treated may perchance arouse indignation against me, but since truth from her changeless throne appeals to me, and Solomon teaches us to meditate on truth and to hate the wicked, and the philosopher Aristotle, our instructor in morals, urges us for the sake of truth to disregard what is dear to us, I, taking confidence from the words of Daniel, in which the divine power is declared to be the shield of the defenders of the truth, will enter on the present contest, and by the arm of him who by his blood delivered us from the power of darkness, I will drive out from the lists the impious and the liar. Wherefore should I fear, since the Spirit, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, says, through the mouth of David, The righteous shall be had in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. These words perhaps justify the inference that the treatise was written before his exile since after it his experience of calamity would have freed him from the anticipation of further evil from the hostility of those to whom his doctrine might be unacceptable. But whether or not this be a correct inference, there can be no doubt that the years between the compilation of the new life and his banishment were years of rapid maturity of his powers, and largely devoted to the studies which made him a master in the field of learning. Keenly observant of the aspects of contemporary life, fascinated by the immense and magic spectacle of human affairs, questioning deeply its significance, engaged actively in practical concerns, he ardently sought for the solution of the mysteries and the reconcilement 
of the confusions of human existence. The way to this solution seemed to lie through philosophy and learning, and in acquiring them he lifted himself above the turmoil of earth. All observation, experience, and acquisition served as material for his poetic and idealizing imagination, wherewith to construct an orderly scheme of the universe. All served for the defining and confirming of his moral judgments. All worked together for the harmonious development of his intellectual powers. All served to prepare him for the work which, already beginning to shape itself in his mind, was to become the main occupation of the remainder of his life, and to prove one of the abiding monuments of the highest achievements of mankind. The De Monarchia is written in Latin, and so also is a brief, unfinished treatise, the work of some period during his exile, on the common speech, De Vulgari Eloquio. It has intrinsic interest as the first critical study of language and of literature in modern times, as well as from the acute and sound judgments with which it abounds, and from its discussion of the various forms and topics of poetry, but still more from its numerous illustrations of Dante's personal experience and sentiment. Its object is to teach the right use of the common speech, instruction required by all, since all make use of the speech, it being that which all learn from birth. Quote, by imitation and without rule, the other speech, which the Romans called grammatica, is learned by study and according to rule. Of these two, the common is the more noble, because it was the first used by the human race, and also because it is in use over all the world, though in different tongues, and again because it is natural to us, while the other is artificial. Speech, Dante declares, is the prerogative of man alone, not required by the angels, and not possible for brutes. There was originally but one language, the Hebrew. In treating of this latter topic, Dante introduces a personal reference of extraordinary interest in its bearing on his feeling in respect to his exile. Quote, it is for those of such debased intelligence that they believe the place of their birth to be the most delightful under the sun, to prefer their own peculiar tongue, and to believe that it was that of Adam. But we, whose country is the world, as the sea is for fishes, although we drank of the Arno before we were weaned, and so love Florence, that because we loved it we suffer exile unjustly, support our judgment by reason rather than feeling, and though, in respect to our pleasure, 
and the repose of our senses no sweeter place exists on earth than florence yet we hold it for certain that there are many more delightful regions and cities than tuscany and florence where i was born and of which i am a citizen and that many nations and people use a more pleasing and serviceable speech than the italians the conclusion of this speculation is that the hebrew which was the original language spoken by adam was preserved by the hebrew people after the confusion of tongues at the building of the tower of babel and thus became the language used by our redeemer the language not of confusion but of grace but the purpose of the present treatise is not to consider all the diverse languages even of europe but only that of italy yet in italy alone there is an immense variety of speech and no one of the varieties is the true italian language that true illustrious courtly tongue is to be found nowhere in common use but everywhere in select usage it is the common speech quote, freed from rude words involved constructions defective pronunciation and rustic accent excellent clear perfect urbane and elect as it may be seen in the poems of sino da pistoia and his friend that friend being dante himself they have attained to the glory of the tongue and quote, how glorious truly it renders its servants we ourselves know who to the sweetness of its glory hold our exile as naught this illustrious language then is the select italian tongue the tongue of the excellent poets in every part of italy and how and by whom it is to be used it is the purpose of this treatise to show the second book begins with the doctrine that the best speech is appropriate to the best conceptions but the best conceptions exist only where there is learning and genius and the best speech is consequently that only of those who possess them and only the best subjects are worthy of being treated in it these subjects fall under three heads that of utility or safety which it is the object of arms to secure that of delight which is the end of love that of worthiness which is attained by virtue these are the topics of the illustrious poets in the vulgar tongue and of these among the italians sino da pastoia has treated of love and his friend dante of rectitude the remainder of the second book is given to the various forms of poetry the canzone the ballata the sonnet and to the rules of versification 
the work breaks off unfinished in the middle of a sentence there were to have been at least two books more but fragment as it is the treatise is an invaluable document in the illustration of dante's study of his own art in its exhibition of his breath of view and in its testimony to his own consciousness of his position as the master of his native tongue and as the poet of righteousness he failed in his estimate of himself only as it fell short of the truth he found the common tongue of italy unformed unstable limited in powers of expression he shaped it not only for his own needs but for the needs of the italian race he developed its latent powers enlarged its resources and determined its form the language as he used it is essentially the language of today not less so than the language of shakespeare is the english of our use in his poetic diction there is little that is not in accord with later usage and while in prose the language has become more flexible its constructions more varied and complex its rhythm more perfected his prose style at its best still remains unsurpassed in vigor in directness and in simplicity changeful from generation to generation as language is and as dante recognized it to be it has not so changed in six hundred years that his tongue has become strange there is no similar example in any other modern literature the force of his genius which thus gave to the form of his work a perpetual contemporaneousness gave it also to the substance and though the intellectual convictions of men have changed far more than their language yet dante's position as the poet of righteousness remains supreme it is surprising that with such a vast and difficult work as the divine comedy engaging him dante should have found time and strength during his exile for the writing of treatises in prose so considerable as that on the common tongue and the much longer and more important book which he called il convivio or il convito the banquet it is apparent from various references in the course of the work that it was at least mainly written between thirteen o seven and thirteen ten its design was of large scope it was to be composed of fifteen parts or treatises but of these only four were completed and such is their character both as regards their exhibition of the poet's nature and their exposition of the multifarious topics of philosophy of science and of morals treated in them that the student of dante and of medieval thought cannot but feel a deep regret at the failure of the poet to carry his undertaking to its intended close but though the work is imperfect as a whole 
each of its four parts is complete and practically independent in itself. Dante's object in the book was twofold. His opening words are a translation of what Matthew Arnold calls, quote, that buoyant and immortal sentence with which Aristotle begins his metaphysics. All mankind naturally desire knowledge. End quote. But few can attain to what is desired by all, and innumerable are they who live always famished for want of this food. Quote, o blessed are the few who sit at that table where the bread of the angels is eaten, and wretched they who have food in common with the herds. I, therefore, who do not sit at the blessed table, but having fled from the pasture of the crowd, gather up at the feet of those who sit at it what falls from them, and through the sweetness I taste in that which little by little I pick up, know the wretched life of those whom I have left behind me, and moved with pity for them, not forgetting myself, have reserved something for these wretched ones. These crumbs were the substance of the banquet which he proposed to spread for them. It was to have fourteen courses, and each of these courses was to have for its principal viand a canzone of which the subject should be love and virtue, and the bread served with each course was to be the exposition of these poems, poems which, for want of this exposition, lay under the shadow of obscurity, so that by many their beauty was more esteemed than their goodness. They were in appearance mere poems of love, but under this aspect they concealed their true meaning, for the lady of his love was none other than philosophy herself, and not sensual passion, but virtue was their moving cause. The fear of reproach to which this misinterpretation might give occasion, and the desire to impart teaching which others could not give, were the two motives of his work. There is much in the method and style of the convito, which in its cumbrous artificiality exhibits an early stage in the exposition of thought in literary form, but Dante's earnestness of purpose is apparent in many passages of manly simplicity, and inspires life into the dry bones of his formal scholasticism. The book is a mingling of biographical narrative, shaped largely by the ideals of the imagination, with expositions of philosophical doctrine, disquisitions on matters of science, and discussion of moral truths. But one controlling purpose runs through all, to help men to attain that knowledge which shall lead them into the paths of righteousness. For his theory of knowledge is that it is the natural and innate desire of the soul, 
as essential to its own perfection in its ultimate union with god the use of the reason through which he partakes of the divine nature is the true life of man its right use in the pursuit of knowledge leads to philosophy which is as its name signifies the love of wisdom and its end is the attainment of virtue it is because of imperfect knowledge that the love of man is turned to fallacious objects of desire and his reason is perverted knowledge then is the prime source of good ignorance of evil through knowledge to wisdom is the true path of the soul in this life on her return to her maker to know whom is her native desire and her perfect beatitude in the exposition of these truths and their various relations a multitude of topics of interest are touched upon and a multitude of opinions expressed which exhibit the character of dante's mind and the vast extent of the acquisitions by which his studies had enriched it the intensity of his moral convictions and the firmness of his moral principles are no less striking in the discourse than the nobility of his genius and the breadth of his intellectual view limited and erroneous as are many of his scientific conceptions there is little trace of superstition or bigotry in his opinions and though his speculations rest on a false conception of the universe the revolting dogmas of the common medieval theology in respect to the human and the divine nature find no place in them the mingling of fancy with fact the unsoundness of the premises from which conclusions are drawn the errors in belief and in argument do not affect the main object of his writing and the convito may still be read with sympathy and with profit as a treatise of moral doctrine by a man the loftiness of whose intelligence rose superior to the hampering limitations of his age in its general character and in its biographical revelations the banquet forms a connecting link between the new life and the divine comedy it is not possible to frame a complete reconciliation between all the statements of the banquet in respect to dante's experience after the death of beatrice and the narrative of them in the new life nor is it necessary if we allow due place to the poetic and allegoric interpretation of events natural to dante's genius in the last part of the new life he tells of his infidelity to beatrice in yielding himself to the attraction of a compassionate lady in whose sight he found consolation but the infidelity was of short duration 
and repenting it, he returned with renewed devotion to his only love. In the Convito, he tells us that the compassionate lady was no living person, but was the image of philosophy, in whose teaching he had found comfort, and the poems which he then wrote, and which had the form, and were in the terms of poems of love, were properly to be understood as addressed not to any earthly lady, but to the lady of the understanding, the most noble and beautiful philosophy, the daughter of God. And as this image of philosophy, as the fairest of women, whose eyes and whose smile reveal the joys of paradise, gradually took clear form, it coalesced with the image of Beatrice herself, she who on earth had been the type to her lover of the beauty of eternal things, and who had revealed to him the Creator in his creature. But now, having become one of the blessed in heaven, with a spiritual beauty transcending all earthly charm, she was no longer merely a type of heavenly things, but herself the guide to the knowledge of them, and the divinely commissioned revealer of the wisdom of God. She, looking on the face of God, reflected its light upon him who loved her. She was one with divine philosophy, and as such she appears in living form in the divine comedy, and discloses to her lover the truth which is the native desire of the soul, and in the attainment of which is beatitude. It is this conception which forms the bond of union between the new life, the banquet, and the divine comedy, and not merely as literary compositions, but as autobiographical records. Dante's life and his work are not to be regarded apart. They form a single whole, and they possess a dramatic development of unparalleled consistency and unity. The course of the events of his life shaped itself in accordance with an ideal of the imagination, and to this ideal his works correspond. His first writing, in his poems of love, and in the story of The New Life, forms, as it were, the first act of a drama which proceeds from act to act in its presentation of his life, with just proportion and due sequence, to its climax and final scene in the last words of the Divine Comedy. It is as if fate had foreordained the dramatic unity of his life and work, and impressing her decree upon his imagination, had made him her more or less conscious instrument in its fulfillment. Had Dante written only his prose treatises and his minor poems, he would still have come down to us 
as the most commanding literary figure of the Middle Ages, the first modern with a true literary sense, the writer of love verses whose imagination was at once more delicate and more profound than that of any among the long train of his successors, save Shakespeare alone, and more free from sensual stain than that of Shakespeare. The poet of sweetest strain and fullest control of the resources of his art, the scholar of largest acquisition and of completest mastery over his acquisitions, and the moralist with higher ideals of conduct and more enlightened conceptions of duty than any other of the period to which he belonged. All this he would have been, and this would have secured for him a place among the immortals. But all this has but a comparatively small part in raising him to the station which he actually occupies, and in giving to him the influence which he still exerts. It was in the Divine Comedy that his genius found its full expression, and it is to this supreme poem that all his other work serves as substructure. The general scheme of this poem seems to have been early formed by him, and its actual composition was the main occupation of his years of exile, and must have been its main, one might say its sufficient, consolation. Never was a book of wider scope devised by man, and never was one more elaborate in detail, more varied in substance, or more complete in execution. It is unique in the consistency of its form with its spirit. It possesses such organic unity and proportion as to resemble a work of the creative spirit of nature herself. The motive which inspired Dante in the Divine Comedy had its source in his sense of the wretchedness of man in this mortal life, owing to the false direction of his desires, through his ignorance and his misuse of his free will, the chief gift of God to him. The only means of rescue from this wretchedness was the exercise by man of his reason, enlightened by the divine grace in the guidance of his life. To convince man of this truth, to bring home to him the conviction of the eternal consequences of his conduct in this world, to show him the path of salvation, was Dante's aim. As poet, he had received a divine commission to perform this work. To him the ten talents had been given, and it was for him to put them to the use for which they had been bestowed. It was a consecrated task to which both heaven and earth set their hand, and a loftier task was never undertaken. 
it was to be accomplished by expounding the design of god in the creation by setting forth the material and moral order of the universe and the share of man in that order and his consequent duty and destiny this was not to be done in the form of abstract propositions addressed to the understanding but in a poetic narrative which should appeal to the heart and arouse the imagination a narrative in which human life should be portrayed as an unbroken spiritual existence prefiguring in its mortal aspects and experience its immortal destiny the poem was not to be a mere criticism of life but a solution of its mystery an explanation of its meaning and a guide of its course to give force and effect to such a design the narrative must be one of personal experience so conceived as to be a type of the universal experience of man the poem was to be an allegory and in making himself its protagonist dante assumed a double part he represents both the individual dante the actual man and that man as the symbol of man in general his description of his journey through hell purgatory and paradise has a literal veracity and under the letter is the allegory of the conduct and consequences of all human life the literal meaning and the allegorical are the web and the woof of the fabric in which the separate incidents are interwoven with twofold thread in designs of infinite variety complexity and beauty in the journey through hell dante represents himself as guided by virgil who has been sent to his aid on the perilous way by beatrice incited by the holy virgin herself in her infinite compassion for one who has strayed from the true way in the dark forest of the world virgil is the type of the right reason that reason whose guidance if followed leads man to the attainment of the moral virtues by the practice of which sin may be avoided but which by themselves are not enough for salvation these were the virtues of the virtuous heathen unenlightened by divine revelation through the world of whose evil hell is the type and fulfillment reason is the sufficient guide and guard along the perilous paths which man must traverse exposed to the assaults of sin subject to temptation and compelled to face the very devil himself and when at last worn and wearied by long continued effort and repentant of his frequent errors he has overcome temptation and entered on a course of purification 
through suffering and penitence, whereby he may obtain forgiveness and struggle upward to the height of moral virtue, reason still suffices to lead him on the difficult ascent until he reaches the security and the joy of having overcome the world. But now reason no longer is sufficient. Another guide is needed to lead the soul through heavenly paths to the attainment of the divine virtues of faith, hope, and charity, by which the soul is made fit for paradise. And here Beatrice, the type of theology, or knowledge of the things of God, takes the place of Virgil, and conducts the purified and redeemed soul on its return to its divine source, to the consummation of its desires, and its bliss in the vision of God himself. Such is the general scheme of the poem, in which the order of the universe is displayed, and the life of man depicted, in scenes of immense dramatic variety, and of unsurpassed imaginative reality. It embraces the whole field of human experience, nature, art, the past, the present, learning, philosophy, all contribute to it. The mastery of the poet over all material which can serve him is complete. The force of his controlling imagination corresponds with the depth and intensity of his moral purpose, and herein lies the exceptional character of the poem, as at once a work of art of supreme beauty and a work of didactic morals of supreme significance. Art, indeed, cannot, if it would, divorce itself from morals. And to every work of art, whether the artist intend it or not, enters a moral element. But in art, beauty does not submit to be subordinated to any other end, and it is the marvel in Dante that while his main intent is didactic, he attains it by a means of art so perfect that only in a few rare passages does beauty fall a sacrifice to doctrine. The divine comedy is indeed not less incomparable in its beauty than in its vast compass, the variety of its interest, and in the harmony of its form with its spirit. In his lectures, on translating Homer, Mr. Arnold, speaking of the meter of Paradise Lost, says, quote, To this meter, as used in the Paradise Lost, our country owes the glory of having produced one of the only two poetical works in the grand style which are to be found in the modern languages. The Divine Comedy of Dante is the other. But Mr. Arnold does not point out the extraordinary fact in regard to the style of the Divine Comedy 
that this poem stands at the beginning of modern literature, that there was no previous modern standard of style, that the language was molded and the verse invented by Dante, that he did not borrow his style from the ancients, and that when he says to Virgil, quote, Thou art he from whom I took the fair style that has done me honor, end quote, he meant only that he had learned from him the principles of noble and adequate poetic expression. The style of the divine comedy is as different from that of the Aeneid as it is from that of Paradise Lost. There are few other works of man, perhaps there is no other, which afford such evidence as the divine comedy of un interrupted consistency of purpose, of sustained vigor of imagination, and of steady force of character, controlling alike the vagaries of the poetic temperament, the wavering of human purpose, the fluctuation of human powers, and the untowardness of circumstance. From beginning to end of this work, of many years, there is no flagging of energy, no indication of weakness. The shoulders, burdened by a task almost too great for mortal strength, never tremble under their load. The contrast between the inner and the outer life of Dante is one of the most impressive pictures of human experience. The pain, the privation, the humiliation of outward circumstance so bitter, so prolonged, the joy, the fullness, the exaltation of inward condition so complete, the achievement so great. Above all other poetry, the divine comedy is the expression of high character and of a manly nature of surpassing breath and tenderness of sympathy, of intensity, of moral earnestness, and elevation of purpose. One closes the narrative of Dante's life and the study of his works with the conviction that he was not only one of the greatest among poets, but a man whose character gives to his poetry its highest and its most enduring interest. End of section 6